big warm welcome to you. This is the Aware Parenting Podcast with Lael Stone and Marion Rose, PhD. We have juicy conversations about things that matter in parenting and life. We're exploring all that Aware Parenting has to offer from many different angles, and we are so glad that you're here. Hello and a big warm welcome to you. My name's Marion Rose. And I'm Lael Stone. And today we have a really important guest, Gabor Mate, MD. Now, if you don't know who Dr. Gabor Mate is, I'll give you a little bit of a brief background on who he is, but I'm sure the world does know because he's just been on the most extensive world tour with his new book. But this is a bit about Gabor. After 20 years of family practice and palliative care experience, Dr. Gabor Mate worked for over a decade in Vancouver's downtown east side with patients challenged by drug addiction and mental illness. He's a best-selling author of five books published in over 30 languages, and Gabor is an internationally renowned speaker, highly sought after for his experience on a addiction, trauma, childhood development, and the relationship of stress and illness. His books include The Realm of Hungry Ghosts, When the Body Says No, Scattered Minds, Hold On to Your Kids, which was co-authored with Dr. Gordon Neufeld, and his latest book is The Myth of Normal. Gabor is also a co-developer of a therapeutic approach called Compassionate Inquiry. It's now studied by hundreds of therapists, physicians, and counsellors, and others internationally. He is also the focus of the documentary The Wisdom of Trauma, which we've actually done three episodes about on our podcast. So we highly recommend going and watching the documentary The Wisdom of Trauma, and then you can go and listen to us talk about it. Please, please go and watch it because it sums up his work so beautifully. So we are so thrilled to have Gabor with us today to share and to talk all about children and us and feelings and all the beauty of what it is to be human. All right. Welcome, Gabor. Nice to be with you, too. So, Gabo, I came across your work maybe about 10 years ago and was firstly struck with your own personal story about being Hungarian, as my in-laws are Hungarian. And they lived through very similar circumstances to what you did, escaping from Hungary. And I've heard many years of trauma of their experience of what they've gone through. But I think what stood out to me so much about your work really was understanding addiction, illness, feelings, and that disconnect particularly with the child through around authenticity, attachment, survival. It speaks so much to the work that both Marion and I do. And I did one of your masterclasses about seven years ago here in Melbourne. And I think the thing that struck me so much about being in that masterclass with you was really your vulnerability and your sharing about your own story and your own healing and your own work. And it was incredibly touching. I remember just really thinking, I haven't seen that many people who are of your calibre with so much vulnerability about their own story. And Mm -hmm. since then, I've just absolutely adored everything you've done. And so I just firstly want to start this interview by saying on behalf of humanity, thank you for the work you've done in the world and for your vulnerability and realness and authenticity in just who you are as a human, but also in the work you speak. So I just wanted to start with my my gratitude for you. Oh, gosh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, by, by the way, as far as vulnerability, I'm no more or less vulnerable than anybody else. Vulnerability is just our human capacity to be wounded. In fact, that's what it means. Yeah. Vulnerability means to wound. And everybody's vulnerable from conception to death. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. The question is, are we willing to acknowledge our vulnerability and own it, or are we not? And so it's not that I'm more vulnerable than others. It's just that I'm... 
happen to be more open to talking about it. And that is only because it's not personal. Yeah. Like, um, it, it's just what happens to us human beings. So when I talk about my own experience, I talk about everybody else's experience. Yeah. And um, there's nothing special about my experience, uh, nor about my vulnerability. It's a question of how willing is one to, to, to talk about it and to put it in the context of the universal human um, mm. human experience. Yeah, beautiful. Yes. Mm. yes. It's so beautiful, isn't it, how you really speak for all of us. And I would also love to add my thanks. I read Hold On To Your Kids, the book that you co-authored with Gordon Newfield back in yeah. 2006, and it had such a profound effect on mm. me. I'd already decided at the time to homeschool my daughter and Really, that book gave me such reassurance and confirmation about that decision, although, of course, it supports all parents, whatever choices they make. So and we went on to homeschool. She's now 21 and my son is 16. So I really want to thank you for that book, which I think has been so pivotal for so many people. And it so happens that Gordon and I were just talking half an hour ago. Oh. And um, since the publication of my most recent book, The Myth of Normal, um, all my other books are selling a lot more copies as well. <laughs> your kids and Gordon and I were just talking about writing a new chapter for Hold On to Your Kids, uh -huh. the impact of the COVID epidemic on children's mental health mm. uh, relates to their relationships to themselves and to the adults and to the peers in their lives. Mm. So COVID had a huge impact, and and much of it. Um, was either mitigated or exacerbated by how well connected kids were to their parents or contrary to their peers because the kids that were totally peer oriented and peer connected really <laughs> suffered because of covid yes they were well connected to their parents actually thrived during covid yes yes it wasn't the covid mm, lockdowns and so on that per se created the problems it's the lockdowns as they acted on kids or either well or poorly attached to the adults in their lives. Yeah, I I'd absolutely second all of that. What I watched with witness with my own children, and particularly with their friends and their peers around them. Yeah, yeah, I would absolutely agree. I saw that play out in a big way. Wow, that's exciting. That'd be really great, great to read. Mm. And we'd also really love to congratulate you on the myth of normal. It's such a magical, amazing, incredible book which contains so much information. And we'd really love to say to all parents listening, most of our listeners are parents, that it really is so important for all parents to read this because you're talking about really the effect of this culture that we live in on us as parents and on our parenting and how much that really affects our ability and capacity to be present with our children, to be connected, to to really listen to their feelings some of the core things that we talk about in aware parenting and you know what I really love is how much there's an overlap between aware parenting and the work that both Lael and I do and what you talk about in the myth of normal that's why I'm, I'm so excited about this episode that we're recording with you and I really think about again we go back to Gordon Newfield and he talks about those four irreducible needs for human maturation the attachment relationship a sense of attachment security, permission to feel one's emotions, and the experience of free play to mature. And in aware parenting, it's based on these principles of secure attachment, the welcoming of children's feelings, and the understanding that their expression is one of the key ways they heal from stress and trauma, and also what we call attachment play, which is a, also a way to prepare for stressful events to heal from stress. 
So also anyone in the aware parenting community I've ever spoken to speaks so highly of you and loves your work. And so I'd love to know, how do you feel being here, having traveled all around the world, spoken to so many people? We've seen so many podcasts you've been on. How do you feel seeing your book being so received so beautifully? Well, first of all, the I'll answer that question, but those four needs of children that you've um, articulated as comes across in the interview with Gordon that I did in this book. Um, it, it's the one of the toxicity, toxicities of our culture is that it just makes it so hard for parents to provide those qualities for their kids. Yeah. They're so straightforward, really. Play. And what could be more straightforward than free play? Um, the capacity of children to experience all their emotions. Mm -hmm. It's the most natural thing in the world. Mm -hmm. The attachment mm -hmm. relationship. <clears throat> And yet it's so daunting for parents in this culture or context to actually make those essential human qualities available to their children. So nothing to do with how much parents love their kids. It's just the stresses of life and the expectations of this culture actually um, discourage parents from providing those essential needs and even uh, teach them to provide their opposite. Yeah. So no wonder so many kids are in trouble. As for how it feels... Well, look, um, <clears throat> it's great. Uh, I, I, I mean, well, on a personal level, I can tell you that on days when I'm miserable, I'm just as miserable. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> my book is on the New York Times <laughs> list or the number one nonfiction book in Canada. Well, right now it's number two behind Harry. You know. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's understandable. <laughs> well, not understandable, but you know, because it's the Harry book so popular, isn't it? <laughs> Everybody's wild about Harry these days, yeah. as the old song goes. But, but <laughs> that's a book about trauma as well, saliently, by the mm. way. Yes. Yes. And, absolutely. Uh, and and. So that feels great. But when I'm miserable, I'm just as miserable. And when I'm happy, I'm just as happy. But it's very satisfying overall. I mean, and and um, it's difficult for me to go these days almost anywhere and not have somebody come up to me and thank me for my work, you know. Mm -hmm. And and what that reflects and the success of this book and other books. Uh, I mean, right now, if you just look at the, I mean, North America, so I'm relating to the North American context. If you look at the New York Times bestsellers list, say for this last week, there's several books on trauma. Mine is on it, uh, Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, uh, Bruce Perry's and Oprah's What Happened to You. The Harry book is certainly about trauma, you know? So um, it's also about royalty and so on, but people are just desperate for this information right now. People yeah. are getting that life is just not working the way it's meant to work amidst all this wealth and knowledge and technology it's almost like we're evolving backwards in terms of the mental health and well-being of our children and not to mention of adults and so it's wonderful to be make a to be able to make a contribution to people's awareness but it's also a, a sign of the times yes. you know, that, that this is just how it is it's getting really tough to be mm -hmm. human these days yeah, 
This is such a perfect segue into the first question I really wanted to ask you. One of the lines that stood out for me in your book, The Myth of Normal, was when you wrote, someone without the marks of trauma would be an outlier of society. And you were talking about that in regards to your story about Ray when she asked if you still she, you still wanted her to pick you up from the airport and when you had all your big feelings come up and that wonderful story. And I'm really curious about, as you were just saying now, so many people are reaching out to you because seeing that they have trauma and in the book, you often talk about the big T trauma, which is things like abuse, death, assault, stuff that I think in the past we would have recognized as that's traumatic. But then you talk about the little T trauma, which is around those elements of that not being attuned to your parents, perhaps issues that went on with siblings. So those kind of more smaller things that happen in the family unit that I think once upon a time we thought were just normal. And so what I'm really curious about from what you've witnessed or seen in the world is are people more open to really unpacking and understanding that kind of small T trauma now? Are you seeing that people are still wanting to sit in more of that victim mentality of blaming their parents and it's their fault? Or are you seeing that there is a bit more of a wake up in the consciousness around people being willing to do that work and lean into it? I, th- I, th- I think I've seen both. I mean, <clears throat> there's some people who are just allergic to even looking at that issue. And the, and the small T trauma, of course, see, trauma is not what happened to you. That's the whole point. Trauma is the wound that you sustain. It's what happened inside you. In fact, the word trauma comes from a word, a Greek word for wound. So mm-hmm. people can be wounded in a number of ways, certainly by the dramatic events such as death or violence in the family or abuse, physical, sexual, emotional addiction, and so on. But children can be wounded, especially sensitive children, but all children can be wounded, not only by the terrible things that may be done to them, which mm-hmm. happens all too often, but also by their needs not being met. Yeah. Those needs for being held, for being seen, for being heard, for being understood, for being attuned with, for having their emotions accepted, like we were saying before. And people are, in their quest to understand themselves, are open to looking at those things if it's properly explained to them. Yeah. And um, and what's really interesting, though, on the other hand, is that even though in this book, as in my other books, I spent several paragraphs explaining how parent blaming is completely inappropriate, that parents do their best, mm-hmm. and that best is a manifestation of their own history, their own experience, their own childhoods, and also, of course, the culture in which they live, which is not a child-friendly culture. Mm-hmm. But they're not to be blamed. And then somebody will review the book and say, there's this whole thing about whining about how bad parents are, and Matt is blaming his parents for all his problems. Why don't they grow up already? Now, that's a person who's not willing to look at their own experience. Yes. And is in denial of their own experience. And actually, the blaming that they project onto me is the blaming that they haven't dealt with in their own lives. But it's interesting. So the answer is yes, many people are very open, and then some people are utterly shut down, shuttered down. It's so so threatening to them. It, it, the pain they feel, I think, is so much mm-hmm. that they're afraid to experience it. Yes. The pain they don't feel, but, but that they harbor. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is so intense that they can't deal with it. 
Thank you so much. We love so much how you bring in such deep compassion in your book, The Myth of Normal, and something that we're so passionate about on this podcast. And we talk about over and over again that this isn't about picking up the guilt sticks, as I call them. This is about actually understanding what happens and being really compassionate with ourselves. Yeah. I I liked your formulation there. Compassion and being passionate, they're good. It's a good combination. (laughs) Can we be can we be compassionately compassionate? That'd be great. Yeah, I love that. I'd love to talk about attachment and authenticity, feelings and the repression of feelings. So you say in your book, and yeah. I really love how this, that you maybe the core theme in every talk or worship, workshop I give is the inescapable tension. And for most of us, the eventual clash between two essential needs, attachment and authenticity. And then you talk then about how that's often where the small T trauma shows up. And you say... The dilemma is this, what happens if our needs for attachment are imperiled by our authenticity, our connection to what we truly feel? And you also say that it's not just children feeling their feelings that's vital, it's the expression of their feelings. And you quote Gordon Newfield again here, where he says, the emotions to remain accessible, the environment must allow them to be safely experienced meaning the child's expression of feelings cannot threaten the attachment relationship with the parents. Yeah. And and you also go on to explain why not having one's feelings heard as a child can lead to suppression and later physical and emotional symptoms. And again, I've got this highlighted in really big, bold letters. You say, I have never treated or interviewed anyone with chronic physical illness or mental affliction who could recall sharing unhappy feelings openly and freely without restraint with their caregivers or any trusted adults. And what I'd love to say in aware parenting, what we talk about so often on this podcast is about the cornerstone of not only accepting and welcoming the expression of all of a child's feelings as much as we all can, given the culture that we live in in our childhood and so on, including the tears and the tantrums, but also understanding that expressing these feelings is actually a core part of their natural recovery and healing processes from stress, mini trauma and trauma. And that when we listen to their child, our child's tears and rages, we not only support them in their natural healing processes, we also help them experience they don't need to choose between being themselves and being loved, that they're getting to express their biggest, most painful feelings and being received with compassion, empathy, closeness and attunement. You also talk, and I was going to say a little bit more that you talk about the process then whereby babies and children learn to repress their feelings. So you say that. No infant refrains from emoting to the parents precisely what he feels or from signaling when she requires help. The failure to do so in childhood is a developmentally abnormal adaptation. So again, we talk about that process in aware parenting where it's so easy. You know, again, we're so busy and most of us didn't have our feelings heard as children. So it's so easily with the, the best possible intentions to, to try and distract our child when they're upset or think that maybe they're hungry or give them a screen to look at. And so we really are here in this podcast to support parents to not only understand the importance of listening to their child's feelings, but to give them the support that they need so that they have more emotional spaciousness to, to be able to listen to those feelings and to know that the child can experience exactly what you talk about 
being themselves, expressing their feelings and being loved and heard. So what I would love to ask you, is this something that you'd like to say to parents about the importance of listening to their child's big feelings and staying close and loving whilst their child is expressing those big feelings so that they really get those authenticity and attachment needs met? So here's the thing. <clears throat> Do you ever see uh, an infant monkey or a monkey adolescent having to pretend to be somebody else in order to be accepted by their parents? Mm. Or does a puppy dog ever have to suppress its fear or its anger um, in order to please the parent? You know, so um, it's not it's not the case that in nature to belong and to be accepted, we have to be other than who we are. But in human life, it happens a lot. Because take the simple, so many parenting experts, for example, out of sheer ignorance or their own unresolved trauma will tell parents that angry kids should be punished for their anger. Mm. By some means, by admonishment or by chastisement verbal or by separation like the timeout. Then the child has got a decision to make. If I want to be accepted, when you say to a child, in effect, that good little kids don't get angry, the message the child gets is that angry little kids don't get loved. Another child has a decision to make on the unconscious level. It's not that kids think, a two-year-old doesn't think this out, or a three-year-old or a five-year-old. But if I have my anger, whatever that's about, I might not like the fact that I have a new sibling. I was the only child, and all of a sudden, there's this rival robbing me of all this attention that I used to be get. I used to get. Well, why wouldn't a kid be angry with that? Mm -hmm. Of course, they would be angry with it. But if they get the message that the anger, no, I'm not talking about they have the right to hit their siblings. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about behaviors. I'm talking about expression of emotion. If the child gets the message that angry kids don't get loved, well, then I'll repress my anger. For the sake of the attachment relationship that means i'm repressing my authenticity now it's not a conscious strategy it's an automatic adaptive mechanism which means it gets wired into the mind and the brain and the body and henceforth that person will have trouble being authentic being themselves that trouble being themselves i can tell you is a significant contributor to all manner of mental and physical illnesses in fact, let's take the obvious. There's this so-called disease of depression. What does it mean to depress something? To push it down. It means to push it down. What gets pushed on in depression is emotions, including healthy anger. Why would a person do that? Because they got the message that if they did express themselves, they would not be acceptable. So there's that tension between authenticity and attachment. So they push it down, but it's not a conscious, deliberate act. It's not like I'm driving my car and I deliberately depress the brake in order to stop the car. And I can take my foot off the brake when I, need, when I can start going again. It's unconscious. So it's so not aware of it. It's in the unconscious. And as such, it gets wired into our psyche. And we keep doing it all the time. And then we're diagnosed with this disease called depression. Yes. Or 
or in the case of uh, physical illnesses, when I was in family practice or palliative care, the people that developed autoimmune disease, for example, and often malignancy, were precisely the ones who repressed their healthy anger. They, they become very, very nice in order to serve everybody else's needs. They um, had trouble with the idea of disappointing anybody. They always felt responsible for other people felt, and they repressed their healthy anger. And not just according to my observations, according to research literature, those factors contribute to the onset of autoimmune disease. It's not accidental that 70-80% of people with autoimmune disease are women. Because as between the two genders, those two male and female genders, in this culture, which is the one that's culturally expected to repress themselves, serve the needs of others, ignore their own needs, not express healthy anger. It's it's women. This is why women have all this autoimmune disease. Yes. And, we... and, 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 and so that choice, which is not a choice at all, that sort of dictated tension between authenticity, being myself or being attached to, is is a deadly one it's 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 a it's a pathological one ultimately and so often healing whether of mental health conditions or physical health conditions involves reconnecting with the authentic self which the culture does not encourage or reward so yeah very often you have to kind of go against, go against cultural expectation so a woman who gets angry in a healthy way oh no you're not supposed to do that yes but but, but ultimately people have to choose as a child, I didn't have any real freedom in the matter. I had to choose attachment over authenticity. I had to choose the relationship. As an adult, we don't still want to keep doing that. And um, a lot of people in, uh, in that situation, and very often it's a disease that forces them to, to reevaluate that choice. Absolutely. One of the things that both Marion and I have worked with for years, with particularly with mothers that we work with, is something that we call mother rage, which is yeah. many women report the same thing. And actually that was me as a mother as well. And Marion shares her stories too of that we grew up being good girls. We grew up being what we thought society wanted us to be, suppressing our anger, our true feelings, and then you become a mother and then you are yeah. with these little people where you often feel out of control and you're not getting your needs met. And so many women come to us and report, all of a sudden I'm so angry and I'm screaming at my children and I don't know what's wrong with me. And yeah. what we have seen and worked with is so often it's all those old repressed feelings from when they were younger where they never got to speak their truth, they never got to have a strong nose, they never got to express how they're feeling coming out in this sweet spot with this tension where they can't get their children to do what they want them to do and they feel powerless and all of a sudden all these big feelings come pouring out. And then, of course, women are very good at making themselves wrong, going, what's wrong with me that I'm doing this, instead of actually being able to understand that this is perhaps a lifetime of suppressed feelings that are now bubbling to the surface. Well, exactly. And I think there's two other nuances to that dynamic. So a lot of women um, were already taking care of others when they were small kids. Like they took on their parents, the stresses of their parents, and they suppressed, they suppressed themselves in order to 
not to exacerbate the emotions and stresses of their parents. Mm -hmm. They did that automatically, unconsciously. They're sick of caregiving. And all of a sudden, these kids come along with their insatiable, infinite, 24-7 demands for attention and, and, and care and so on. And women are doing so in a rather isolated fashion. We've evolved in small band hunter-gatherer groups where mothering was the function of the whole group. Mm -hmm. It wasn't on the shoulders of an individual woman or, or man uh, in some isolated bungalow or apartment. So that all of a sudden, I've been, you know, unconsciously, I've been caretaking all my life. And I go, oh, no, my God, I got to do it again. And the child gets the brunt of the woman's resentment. Yes. No, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is, as we as I talk about in the myth of normal, in my own marriage, my wife had two types of children to take care of. One was the small children, the newborns and the toddlers, and then the other was in the, in the shape of her adult husband, <laughs> who, who who projected onto her his unmet needs for mothering when he was a child. So very often women in a situation of they have two sets of children, one in the adult body of a male or a partner and the other in the small children. And then, and women tend to take on the mothering of their spouses and any energy that's taken away, any energy that's given to, 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 to mothering the adult child is taken away from mother, from mothering the, the little child. Mm -hmm. And no wonder people get depressed. And and so when I look at postpartum depression and why women are much more likely to be given anti-anxiety pills and antidepressants, because they're absorbing the stresses of their partners as well. Mm. So they're getting depressed and anxious for both of them. Meanwhile, they're having to look after the kids as well. This is why women have more mental health um, challenges and more physical, chronic physical health challenges as well. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Um, yes, we can second all of what you're saying. I think we've seen that over the last 25 years of working with families. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We have seen that again and again. I would love to just touch on quickly on intergenerational trauma. You talk about that in your book. And I think science has done a beautiful job of helping us understand through things like epigenetics, the impacts of trauma through generations and how it can be passed down. I'd love to know your thoughts on how we heal intergenerational trauma, the children or the grandchildren of people that have lived through wars or atrocities or those kind of things. How do you see that we can begin to heal that intergenerational trauma? Well, so for, for the most part, <clears throat> virtually all trauma is intergenerational. I mean, there are some situations <clears throat> where new events occur that might traumatize previously untraumatized people, but most trauma as we experience it day to day is intergenerational. In other words, the traumas that I hadn't healed yet in myself, or maybe wasn't even aware of inside myself, they were passed on to my kids. And if they don't work them out before they have kids, they'll inevitably almost pass it on to their kids. So it's, it's virtually all intergenerational. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you stop it is, 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 is that whenever the trauma is recognized, you heal it in, in whoever you recognize it in, yourself or others. So it's, it's like really like links in a chain and, 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 it's it's yet at some point break the link of transmission 
And just how tragic that is and how dire that is, you can see it in the Aboriginal population in your country, Australia, where there's much more dysfunction and violence and probably suicide and mental illness and being jailed and all this kind of stuff. In my country, Canada, where the indigenous population was horribly traumatized for, well, well over a century. Um, and, and, and then these were people, both in your country and mine, who knew how to parent a whole lot better than we know how to parent. Their traditional parenting practices were far more related to true human nature, far more communal, far more um, emotionally connected to the children. They carried the children. In Canada, at least, Indigenous people did not hit their children. You know, and now these same populations that used to parent beautifully because they got colonized, now the trauma transmission is just endemic with the results that are horrendous. You know, in my country, 50% of the women in jail are indigenous. They make up 5% of the population. The proportions, when I've studied them in Australia, are similarly distorted, all because of the impact of the trauma of colonialism, which then creates multi-generational trauma that is then transmitted um, down the line. Well, you have to feel it, you have to heal it wherever you find it. And um, unfortunately, the tendency of societies, both in Australia and here, is still to punish the manifestations of trauma rather than to deal with the sources of it. As a result, the chance of an Aboriginal person, a male in Australia, being jailed and dying in jail are much higher than that of a Caucasian. For no reason that's got anything to do with genetics. It's purely the cultural multigenerational transmission of trauma reinforced by um, ongoing um, social uh, inequality and 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 and, um, and racism. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. So go, Mary. Well, we so appreciate you naming that because here in Australia, yesterday was it's still called Australia Day, but it is also now so often yeah. called Invasion Day or Genocide Day. And so yeah. really love to acknowledge we wanted to see how we could bring that in. So thank you for bringing that in and really acknowledging the horrific things that have happened to the Indigenous people in the country that we're honoured to live in and you too and all across the world. And I think it's such an important thing to really acknowledge. So thank you so much for that. I feel so touched. You have such a way of bringing such incredible wisdom and knowledge in a way that's so, I mean, you live your talk, don't you, that's so embodied and compassionate and present. So. It's, it's funny, you know, because I think I've just said, I think I've just said the obvious, you know. Like, <laughs> I get all this uh, attention for saying the obvious, you know. Yeah, it's funny, isn't um, it? <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's both funny and sad. Yeah. But, you know, there's a chapter in the book on the actual physiological effects of racism. Mm. Racism isn't just emotionally painful. It literally gets under the skin. It affects the immune system, the hormonal apparatus, the nervous system. You know, it, it, it creates pathology. So in Canada, for example, an indigenous woman has six times the rate of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Than, than, uh, six times. This is in a population that never used to have autoimmune disease at all. 
It's got nothing to do with genetics. It has everything to do with the impact of stress on, on the physiology. And, 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 and of course, racism is a huge source of stress. And especially on women, because it's, as we talk about it, they talk about intersectionality, which means that when different factors intersect. So when you're a woman and and of, a, of color, mm. your chance, whether in the States or Australia or Canada, of autoimmune disease is much higher. Yes. Then, and if either factor was there by itself, or if neither factor was present. So, if you're male and non-indigenous, your risk of autoimmune disease is much less, much, yeah. much less. Yeah, and I'd really love to go on from that and ask you about the impacts physiologically of stress and trauma, and the relationship of that to addiction. So uh, in your book, you're writing about V. You talk, you get so many beautiful and moving case studies. I was in tears several times hearing what you were sharing. And um, you said of her experience, you say, nature's best recommendations would be to escape or to fight back against the misuse of her body and the assault on her soul. But herein lies the rub. Neither option is available to a small child for the attempt either would be to put herself in further jeopardy. Therefore, mm. nature defaults to plan C. Both impulses are suppressed by tuning out the emotions that would propel such responses. This yes. suppression would seem to be akin to the freeze response that creatures often display when fight and flight are both impossible. And then you quote Jack Pansep. I don't know if I'm saying his name accurately, the late yeah, neuroscientist. Yeah, Jack yeah, Pansep, yeah. Oh, Jack Pansep, my apologies. And he says, we have feelings because they tell us what supports our survival and what detracts from our survival. That's right. Emotions emerge not from the thinking brain, but from ancient brain structures associated with survival. Intense rage activates the fight response. Intense fear mobilizes flight. Therefore, if the circumstances dictate that these natural healthy impulses to defend or to run away must be quelled, then gut level cues, the feelings themselves will have to be suppressed as well. That's and then, of course, you go on to talk so much about addiction, continuing your beautiful work in your previous books as well. And you say the second cornerstone query regarding addiction, one that has become something of a mantra with me, ask not why the addiction, but why the pain. And you talk yeah. about the addiction process has certain intrinsic features known to all, and that it's really a continuum, that we are all on that continuum. There's not like a them over there, but we are all on that continuum. Um, so in our book, Raising uh, Resilient and Compassionate Children, we also talk about control patterns. So in aware parenting, that is the ways that we habitually suppress or repress our feelings or dissociate. And these are ways that we've learned in infancy and childhood and particularly when we've been even just lovingly distracted from our feelings, as we were talking about before, or indirectly when our parents are really stressed, as you talk about in this culture, or really just not able to be present with our feelings. And, and in uh, Letha Salter's book, she's the founder of Aware Parenting. She wrote a book called The Healing, Healing Your Traumatized Child. In that she talks about, and we talk about it in our book too, how children move out of repression or mild dissociation or even freeze when they feel safe and protected. So there's someone here in the present moment that is offering emotional warmth and support so they can actually feel those underlying feelings from past stress or trauma and they can then express and release those feelings and then they actually then get to complete that natural fight, flight or freeze 
mechanism and that, which is a natural biological recovery process and that's through things like specific kinds of play we call attachment play but also crying and tantrums and trembling and laughter and body movements and these actions that are like the loud noises of that classic tantrum the vigorous body movements actually release that stress that was mobilized for fight or flight and so children then can move out of that state of either hyperarousal or dissociation release those painful feelings and express actions that help them know that they are powerful now in ways that they weren't in the past and so that the trauma then they know that the trauma has been healed and overcome and I often think about that classic thing you think of the classic child having a tantrum on a supermarket floor and their arms and legs are going of course if we think about fight and that all the energy mobilized to fight and to flee all the energy mobilized in the legs that actually our bodies we have this inbuilt stress and trauma healing mechanism right from birth to, to heal from stress and trauma but of course for parents to be able to support their children to heal in these ways they need to both understand these processes and also to have the emotional spaciousness and capacity to actually be with those feelings, which is so hard often for most of us because we didn't get that ourselves. Is there anything that you'd like to say to parents who are experiencing that with their child, they're having their child's having big feelings and maybe they're needing reassurance that it's actually helpful to listen rather than to distract or punish or all the other things that can happen? Well, <clears throat> look, um, if a child is frequently throwing tantrums as they say there's a reason for it that child is frustrated now when do we get frustrated when our needs are not met the child's biggest need is unconditional emotional contact with the parent that child who's throwing a tantrum repeatedly because they don't get a cookie before dinner that's not what they're throwing a tantrum about that's just a trigger so the first thing is to understand why the child is frustrated and really to um, look at the parenting environment. What's happening with the parents? Are they too busy with their own stresses? Is the child picking up on a lot of tension between the parents? Are the parents, do they have the space and the emotional um, bandwidth to really listen to their kid and to get attuned with the child so the child does not have to express it in such desperate ways so they really have to look at in other words don't look for the sources of the problem within the child look for the sources of the problem within the child's experience in the environment that the child is in and again i'm not talking about is the child being loved or not they are but that's not the issue the issue is are they being seen and understood and heard and attuned with a lot of parents who love their kids I mean, I, I was one example, you know. They couldn't attune with their kids. So, A, what is the source of the child's frustration? Secondly, when it happens, what happens inside you? Because if you get tense and upset, that means you don't have self-regulation. And you expect the child to have self-regulation? You know? So, what's being triggered in you? Well, if you examine it, your own anger, your own hurt, maybe your own sense of inadequacy. Well, that's not the child's fault. In other words, it doesn't matter how the child behaves. How you feel is entirely your, your responsibility. That doesn't mean, again, you put up with breaking windows or beating up on your siblings, the child doing so. But I'm talking about the parent's reaction now 
to the child's emotions. And then thirdly, then if we can be present with the child and say, oh, you're really angry right now. You really wanted that cookie. Yeah. You really don't like that daddy didn't give it to you. You're angry at daddy right now. Yeah. In other words, validate the child's feelings. Why shouldn't they be angry? I mean, what do you do when you get frustrated? You know, uh, you get, you tend to get aggressive. So, A, looking at the environment that maybe is the source of the child's frustration. Um, the, the child who's often angry doesn't need timeouts and punishments. They need time in. They need a lot of contact, a lot of holding. That's volunteered by the parent. That that doesn't um, depend on the child having to beg, ask, or demonstrate for it. It's coming voluntarily and spontaneously from the parent. As mm -hmm. Gordon says, stuff them so full of attention that it's coming out of their ears, as he puts it. Mm -hmm. um, and and then, you know, look at your own reactions and take responsibility for them. And then thirdly, validate the child's emotion. Yes, and um, just yes, yes, yes to everything you're saying. Yes, we absolutely we're both just nodding along, going, mm -hmm. "Yep, we see that all the time." I would just love to ask a quick question about education. You talk about in your book about yeah. what our core needs are as humans, and when we look at our more mainstream education systems, it's clear that in many, many ways we aren't meeting the needs of children. I have shared with you in one of my emails that I built a school a few years ago, and it's based on all the core needs of choice and autonomy, feeling safe in their environment, non-punitive measures, listening to feelings. And already in the three years we've been open, we have seen the most extraordinary emotional shifts in and growth in the children and even academic acceleration, which wasn't why we set it up, but that's even been... No, no, so to interrupt, not even, yeah. but, but naturally. Yes, because, naturally, that's it. You know, it's yeah. not like, yeah. Because when children feel safe, you know what happens? They're prefrontal cortex comes online yes. now they can learn a whole lot better that's it that is and it then, and their spontaneous curiosity gets activated yes that and, and that is yeah that is what we see and i see just how important this is yet i guess my big question is the system that is out there it is so ingrained in our system around these punitive measures around and not necessarily allowing having children to have this choice and autonomy I'm curious as what do you think needs to happen on a systemic level for this great change to occur in our systems, like not just in education, but even in your beautiful documentary, The Wisdom of Trauma, which we did three episodes on our podcast about. We loved it so much. You even yeah. touch on the prison system and all those kind of things. What do you see that needs to happen on that bigger systemic level to create that change? Well, the first thing that needs to happen <clears throat> is that the school system needs to evaluate what its intentions are. Because your actions follow from your intentions. Now, if you look at human brain development, if you look at the actual science of human brain development, and I'm quoting now from an article that appeared in the Journal of Pediatrics, which is the official journal of the American Pediatric Academy. The article is from Harvard University, and it says that the brain develops in an ongoing process that begins before birth and continues into adulthood. And the same article makes the point, in the next sentence, that the most important determinant of healthy brain development is the quality of adult-child relationships, particularly in the early years. Now, if 
brain development begins before birth, which it does, and continues to adulthood, which it does, then the schools need to be asking themselves, is our job to teach kids what year um, the Battle of Waterloo took place? Or who was the Prime Minister of Australia in 1938? Or is our job to promote brain development? Because if their job is to provide brain development, they'll stop cramming facts down kids' throats and they'll, they'll create conditions where children feel safe and they feel invited, where their natural curiosity is encouraged, where activity and free play are celebrated rather than suppressed, um, where the emotional relationship between the teachers and the students is far more important than the academic um, um, enforcement of, 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 of factual learning. And again, going back to how human beings evolved, if you're going to be scientific about it, how human beings evolved was, as we said earlier, on these small band hunter-gatherer groups where kids were with the nurturing adults the whole day. It's completely unnatural for kids to go away from their parents the whole day. Now, it may be necessary, but if it's both necessary and unnatural, then how can we approximate nature by making the teachers into parent surrogates? Where no teachers are the emotional supports and nurturers of the kids. That's far more important. Now, as you have found, as you have found, the child who's provided with emotional safety and support and self-expression will be naturally curious. They'll want to learn about the Battle of Waterloo. They'll want to know the history of their country. They'll want to be able to do mathematics. They'll want to be able to sing and dance and play music. And and about science and how cells work and how plants grow and how animals reproduce. They'll want to learn all that because the natural drive for mastery and curiosity is simply an attribute of a human being if we don't stifle it. Mm -hmm. So if the uh, schools are really serious that our, our purpose is child development, healthy development, and the full unfoldment of the child's learning capacities will we'll provide a different set of conditions. However, that's at odds with the cultural needs of a society that needs children to fit into jobs that they hate. Mm -hmm. Or if, even if they hate it, they'll do it because they have to. And to fit into programs and situations where they're not being authentic. And so the pessimism in my tone here is that it's not as if the school system is a big mistake. It isn't. It's designed to serve a certain system and it does it really well at the cost of children's curiosity, learning, and emotional health very often. Now, those children whose needs are met at home and, and, and who get the nurturing and so on, they'll go into the school system. They'll be able to get through it. They'll even thrive in it. But if you want to be a successful teacher, you know what you do? Don't get a job in a, in a neighborhood where the people are poor and struggling and under stress and trauma or if they're indigenous. Get a job in an upper-class Caucasian neighborhood 
where the parents are home with the kids and the kids have a lot of emotional support if the parents can provide it, then you'll be a brilliant teacher. So, again, it's a question of what is the intention of the school system. And for the school system to meet the needs of children, that would have to be their intention, is to meet the developmental needs of, developmental needs of the child. And very, very often teachers recognize this. And very often teachers are frustrated by the demands of the system as compared with the needs of the child. And their own needs for genuine connection and genuine contribution are very often frustrated by the demands of the enforced testing and the repetitive and rote learning that they're forced to inculcate. Yeah, absolutely. I, I speak to teachers all the time who feel exactly that way. They want it to do it differently. They want the connection. They want they understand around what children need. But as you say, exactly in a system that doesn't support that, it's very, very challenging to do. Do you have one more question, Marion? I do. I also would love to say, you know, we talk about that so often, don't we, Lau, that the kind of three options that you sent your children to mainstream school and yet you really help them uh, express their feelings and stay deeply connected with you. I homeschool my children and then you've set up a school that actually supports both. So there's this beautiful triangle there. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about true nature as human beings. So in your book, The Myth of Normal, you talk about the importance of asking the question, what is our true nature as human beings? And you have this yeah. beautiful, beautiful quote. You say, when we reify, set in stone, mentally speaking, the particular way human behavior shows up in a certain place and time, we commit the fallacy of conflating how we're being with who we are. This error can keep us from considering other possibilities, even if our current way of operating isn't good for us. We then replicate conditions that are unfit for our well-being, and the sad saga continues. And you also talk about, um, and there's a beautiful quote that you talk near the end. It's so beautiful and poetic. You say, my own heart resonates with the thought that despite all evidence to the contrary, there is in all of us an essential aspect that cannot be extinguished. As individuals, we are unable to see our own beauty or perfection. As members of a collective, we miss how we are all made of, indeed interwoven within the same divine fabric. If you prefer, you can substitute words like eternal, ancient, or soul for divine. And what I'd love to say is for me personally, my experience mm. of practicing aware parenting with my children and really seeing that so often the experience that they would express big feelings to me, they'd have a big cry and a big rage and they'd let all these feelings mm. out and they would come out the other side so calm mm. and so present. I remember the, the first time mm. I ever listened to my daughter's feelings and it was like, she was like a, a Buddha, like this quality of presence. She was gazing to my eyes. It was this whole stillness entered the room. Oh. It was one of the most exquisite moments. And oh. what I saw in a general way, and we talk, Lana has talked so often to parents who experience this, that basically from an aware parenting perspective, the more we're able to meet a child's needs and the more we're able to listen to their feelings, then actually we do see this presence, the eye contact, the relaxation in their muscles, the natural desire, as you talk about, to cooperate and to contribute, to want to learn, to be able to concentrate on things, to be able to go to sleep because they actually feel relaxed in their bodies. So basically so many of the things that 
that we see that parents find challenging is so often from the way we see it is because of these unmet needs and the unexpressed feelings from stress and trauma. So to me, it's been such a confirmation that I would never go back on the knowing that actually who we really are is that beautiful state. And so when I see adults, I don't see the behavior, I see the hurt. So Mm. what I'd love to ask you actually is, are you willing to say more about why you think that shift of beliefs about our true nature as human beings from that idea that we're innately bad or sinful, that we need to be punished and rewarded, that children are misbehaving, all those kinds of beliefs that come from this older culture. So every society makes assumptions about human nature, either consciously or unconsciously. So it's very common, isn't it? for uh, somebody to behave selfishly or manipulatively or aggressively. And what do people say? Well, that's just human nature, you know? On the other hand, when somebody is uh, kind and generous and open-hearted, do we ever say, well, that's just human nature? We don't. So we make an assumption of what human nature is, but that's an assumption. And what we tend to do is we generalize what we see around us or what we experience ourselves onto this fictitious entity called human nature. Well, from my perspective, there's no human nature as such that determines our behavior. There are human needs. And if those needs are met, we'll develop one particular way. If they're not, we'll develop another particular way. And if you don't believe me, try planting a seed in your backyard and either meet its needs or don't meet its needs. And then tell me about what's the nature of the seed. Well, Nature of the seed, given the right environment, is to grow into a plant. Given the wrong environment, it's to get distorted or not to thrive at all. Now, the assumption in this society, which reflects the ideology of capitalism and nothing more, is that people are selfish, greedy, and individualistic and aggressive. That's the assumption. But you talk to most people and you say, well, have you ever behaved aggressively and greedily and selfishly? They'll say, yes, I have. And I will say, yes, of course I have. And then you can ask them, have you ever behaved generously and kind-heartedly and, and, and with fellow feeling? They say, yeah, I've done that too. And you ask them, what does it feel like in your body when you behave one way or the other way? Which feels more you? Which feels better in your viscera but the vast majority of people will say oh yeah when i'm generous and open-hearted i feel so much better in my body i'm not talking about in your thoughts i'm talking about in your viscera in your body than when i'm aggressive and greedy and selfish that should tell you what 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 essential human nature is really all about You know, and the question is, which conditions promote one or the other? And so this society promotes that competitive, competitive, aggressive, acquisitive aspect. And a lot of the way we raise children unwittingly promotes that. And then that proves our, you know, then that proves it. This is human nature, not realizing that we're the ones who created the conditions that lead to those outcomes which we then think is natural and normal. And then, you know, the the subtitle of the book is Trauma and Illness in a Toxic Culture. And the reason that's the subtitle is because our argument in this book is that what we consider to be normal in this culture is neither healthy or natural. It's toxic. Yes. 
precisely because it 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 goes against our essence and our essential needs. Hmm. Yes, yes to all of all of that. I think we're probably at time, Marion. Did you have something else that you wanted to ask? Yeah, I had one more question really responding to what you were saying there about for parents to go away with. What can we do to help children stay more connected with themselves when we do live in this culture? I call it the disconnected domination culture, this culture. And in your book, again, in The Myth of Normal, you you quote Eric Fromm and how the family really you're talking about schools but how family also brings in these beliefs by the ways that we respond to our children and what I loved when you were sharing that is uh, again aware parenting really responds to each of these so you say the social character rather than the more innate self is seeded when and you go through a whole list so the children are deprived of breastfeeding so in aware parenting we really promote where possible long-term breastfeeding the next thing is when they're left alone to cry out. And in aware parenting, we talk about crying with loving support, never leaving a baby or child alone to cry. The next thing in that list is when they're compelled to repress their feelings. And again, in aware parenting, we talk about whenever possible, listening to children's feelings so they have less need to suppress them, repress them. So there's this whole long list of when they're programmed to fit in with the expectations of others. And again, in aware parenting, we're really about supporting children to really to listen to their interests and their, their preferences and callings when they another point is when they're disciplined by punitive measures such as time out and in aware parenting we talk about non-punitive discipline which is really looking at the causes behind the behavior as Lael often says look to look behind the behavior so to finish and what i would love to say and i'm just going to scroll down my very long notes because i took very- but, but you know what Mary, my, why okay. are you doing that i also want to add this yes. stuff Children are so, the development is so distorted by the exposure to digital media at an early age. Mm -hmm. And uh, these devices are designed to be addictive to your kids. They're literally designed deliberately to be addictive. And they are addictive and they distort the physiology of the brain. So if I was a new parent today, I would not let my kids near any digital technology for many, many, many years. None at all. And this has completely replaced play for a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. Spontaneous. This is not spontaneous play. This is program play designed by some corporation 10,000 miles away. Mm-hmm. They don't care about your kid's development. Mm-hmm. They care about selling a product and hooking the kid into the product. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been studied now. It's been long. It's been on. The, the results are horrendous. Mm-hmm. So it's one more thing that we have to mention when we talk about what is it that distorts child development yes and of course then living in a culture where it's um you know parents we don't have enough support we don't live in these hunter together groups so that often yeah. you know we the screens are really helpful to for parents when they're busy or stressed or needing to work you that's know, right often. it is i understand yeah, parents so, and, yes. and you know and one of the saddest things you'll see and maybe you see it in your neighborhoods uh, also as a parent pushing a kid in a tram and the tram is facing away from the parent, and the parent is pushing the tram and is doing this at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah. this this digital invasion of our minds is, um, well, the results are deplorable. We have to be very, very wary of it and aware of it. Yes. 
a future book of yours, perhaps, all about it. Just one book. <laughs> We've done it. In, in Hold On To Your Kids, there's two chapters yeah. on it. Yeah. I mentioned it in this book. Yes. And uh, it's just other people have written about it as well. Yes. Um, so it's just something to be really aware of. As, as enticing as it is, mm-hmm. and as you say, it's like an instant babysitter. Yes. When you're isolated, who can blame you? Exactly. But the effects are really negative. Yeah. 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 So I'd love to say in the last chapter of The Myth of Normal, you offer possibilities for a trauma-informed culture, including medicine, the law, and education. And you mentioned parenting, and you say, I leave it to you, the reader, to imagine what our world would look like if we placed young people's well-being in the forefront what would it mean for parenting and for support for parenting, for childcare and education, for the economy, for what products we sell and buy, and so on? What if our intention as parents, as educators, as a society was to raise children in touch with their feelings, authentically empowered to express them, to think independently, and to be prepared to act on behalf of their principles? Uh, And we must also remember that parents need each other and that we all need the presence of life-tested elders like you, Gabor, in a world that's committed to health, child-rearing and intergenerational transmission of values and culture then wouldn't be an isolating task. And to finish, you say, there are plenty of grounds for this kind of optimism based on what we know about human nature and needs and about the resilience and mysterious healing powers of the body and mind. We can also take sustenance from the knowledge that each of us is one of a growing community of people who are seeing through the status quo and envisaging alternatives to it. So again, what we'd love to do here, Lel and I, and all the people listening, I'm sure, is to deeply acknowledge, Gabor, all that you've done to profoundly change the collective understanding of culture, of trauma, of addiction, of illness, of saying no, of all the, your beautiful books that go before this one, The Myth of Normal. And really the importance of what we experience in childhood and the centrality of our unique selves being welcomed and our feelings heard. So we know that so many of our audience already love your work and have already read The Myth of Normal, but for those of them who haven't, we so highly recommend it. So thank you so much for talking with us today. We've so enjoyed it. We so appreciate you and just thank you so much for what you're doing. Well, what a great pleasure. Thank you for both of you. Do you guys know Joel Tucci? No. Joel Tucci? No, he's he's a fellow Australian. Ah, okay. uh, uh, Let's see. Let's look at his email here. Um, Where is it? Um, Here it is. So he runs a conference. I'm surprised you don't know him. He, he he runs the Australian Childhood Foundation. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry. I have been to those conferences. I just didn't know who that's, he was. That's where you yes. saw me, I That's think. where I saw you. Yes, yes. So I, ju- I just got an email from him today inviting me to come next year in 2024. Um, oh, wow. So who knows, but I might who be knows. there. Um, well, Gabor, if you come, I would love you to come and visit my school because I would love you to come and see what we do. It's It speaks to everything that you stand for and to see it in action. So who knows, if you do come to Melbourne again, I'd love you to come and visit. That'd be great. And thank you both. Yeah, thank you so much for your time today, Gabor. We're so, um, we so appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thanks for joining us on the Aware Parenting Journey. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Aware Parenting Podcast. You can find more about Lael at www.laelstone.com.au or find Marion at www.marionrose.net. We wish you much compassion and grace on your parenting journey.